Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us or you call this place your uh, church home, would you do me a favor? There's a Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you, and if you and your family would take uh, a moment during the service to fill that card out, I would really appreciate it. It'll make me think you're taking notes, so that's good. Uh, but if you'd fill that out and drop it in the offering tray in just a little while, uh, we really do genuinely love having the opportunity to pray for you and your families. And so when you put your prayer request on the back of that card, uh, they get sent to us. Uh, our elders get to pray during the week, and then we meet on Saturday mornings and we pray for you guys. And so uh, please take a moment to fill that out some point during the service today. Uh, three quick things like housekeeping items, uh, things going on in the life of the church that we want to make you aware of and just make sure they're on your radar. The first is an invitation to uh, join us again this evening at 630. Um, so tonight at 630 we're having a worship night and uh, we're going to meet out in the lobby area. There's going to be uh, Christmas songs or scripture reading, a prayer time. Uh, it's going to be really well done and we want to encourage you and your family to come back tonight um, at 630 and join us for a worship night. Second invitation, uh, you've got a card on the seat around you, uh, one of these. And it's just an invitation to our Christmas Eve services. We're going to have three services on Christmas Eve, uh, 4 o'clock, 5.30, and 7 o'clock. Uh, we're going to have a very uh, clear gospel message preached at those services. We're going to sing Christmas songs together and um, just kind of bring the Advent season uh, as a church family to a close, waking up the next morning excited uh, and all that. But we want to invite you to come. We, we made these cards so that you, it's an easy way for you to invite somebody. Uh, statistics uh, show, kind of across the board, that your friends and family members that are not involved in the church are more likely to accept an invitation to church on Christmas Eve than any other day of the entire year. And so simply having this, hey, we would love for you to join us, be here for one of the three services. But note, the 7 o'clock service, there's no child care. So please, uh, if, if you're bringing little ones, like my family is, uh, come to the 4 o'clock or the 5.30. Uh, but grab that, and you are officially invited. The last um, announcement or invitation, so... Christmas ones, and now a New Year's one. Starting Wednesday night, January the 9th, from 6.30 to 7.45, we're going to be offering a class here at the church on uh, developing a biblical worldview. Uh, Ryan King and myself are going to teach the class. We're inviting you and all of our discipleship groups to come to that class uh, starting on Wednesday nights. Uh, and there is childcare, but you've got to register for it so that we can prepare, but there's no food. And so we're doing 6.30, 7.45, so you can get a meal ahead of time. But we really think that equipping the church with the, the elements, understanding the depth of the Christian worldview, how to live it out, how to engage cultural issues, how to live in this culture um, with, with a biblical worldview is important. That'll start Wednesday night um, on January the 9th. And so you can make a note of that. Check the website for more info. Now, um, let's get to the message. Let's pray this morning, and we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Father, thank you for being with us this morning, and God, many of us walk into this room, and uh, we feel overwhelmed, tired. Some of us, though, are having a, a lot of joy, feeling very good about things. Wherever we're at, Father, would you bring us to the place of complete reliance upon you? Would you teach us something this morning from your word as we walk out of this place? God, I believe your word can change our hearts and make us different, and so we want to fully submit to that today, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, last week we, we started this Christmas series in Colossians chapter 1, and we kind of learned this idea that each of us, uh, wherever we're at in our journey, we hope. Uh, we hope for certain things, we hope in certain things, and that hope, where we place our deepest hope in life, is usually revealed by where we place our faith. And so, whatever I hope in is kind of revealed at a, at a lower level as to how I'm living my life based on 
where my faith has been placed. And so today, as we continue, we're going to actually learn a little bit more about the God in whom we're called to place our trust and why he's worthy of us placing our trust and our faith and our hope in him. Now, let me start this way, though. Have any of you ever had um, one of those days where you thought, yeah, it's just not going to, this isn't my day. Like, things just, this is not going to happen today. Anybody? Three, four of us, a few of us. All right. Where you woke up, and from the moment you woke up, you thought, probably be better if the day was just over, if I could just go to bed and start this one all over again. Everything I touch is breaking. Everything I say is hurting. Like, ah, I can't seem to get it right today. I've had many of those days in my life. But one of the ones that topped them all was not mine. It belonged to my son, Caleb. Uh, five years ago, I was traveling in India, visiting one of our missionaries here at New Hope. And uh, on the other side of the world, my then five-year-old son was here, having one of those days. And he was at uh, Nana and Papa's house, so Grandma and Grandpa's. He's in the backyard, and uh, he and his sister and brother were throwing what they thought was just mud uh, toward the house. And uh, Caleb picks up a piece that he thinks is just mud, and he's just kind of throwing it. And he throws it against the back giant sliding glass door of their house, and it happened to be a rock, uh, and it shattered the entire window. Just kind of a million pieces just shattered. And he was, happened to be the only one outside at that moment, and no one inside could walk through the broken glass to get to him. He's just standing there, a little five-year-old. He just starts crying. He has no idea what to do. Again, I was in India, so this one's not on me. Uh, <laughs> but he's standing, he's standing there, and just like he's just crying and crying and crying. And so they get him. They clean up the glass. They're like, all right, how do we cover the gaping hole in the back of the house now? Uh, and then they decide, um, Sarah, my wife, decided, I'm going to take Caleb with me to run a few errands, just kind of bring his spirits up a little bit. She didn't know this was one of those days for him. So they get to Walmart, and they're going to buy some cards to write encouragement car encouraging cards to uh, other people. So they're in the card aisle. And if you've been to the card aisle at Walmart, you know that it is a giant wall of cards. My son goes and says, I think we should get this card. And he pulls the one card that I think was holding everything together. Because the moment he pulled the card, all of the other cards fell. And he stood there like he had just like two hours earlier at the back of his grandparents' house and started crying. <laughs> but what makes it even better is that as he and my wife are trying to pick up and clean all of these cards, there's a guy by himself, walks to the edge of the aisle, looks down, makes eye contact with them, huh, and keeps going. Uh, <laughs> chivalry is dead. Uh, so he, uh, they had to clean them all up. And I hear about this, and I'm all the way across the world, and I just want to be able to encourage him, and I, like, I can't that well from a distance. But I thought, man, this is just one of many, bud. You're going to have other days, hopefully not to that extent. Uh, you're going to have other days where it just feels like everything's falling apart. And maybe that you've been there. Maybe, like, honestly, how foolish of us to think that a room with this many people in it, somebody would not be sitting here today being like, yeah, that actually is today. That, today's my day. Um, today's the day that everything just feels like chaos. Maybe you come to this season of the year and you come to church because you're like, I think I really want to get things better. I really want to experience the peace that we sing about, that we read about, that we talk about. But my whole year would be described as that day for your son, Rob. I've just had one of those years where peace would not be the word to describe my experience. It would be chaos. 
Things are completely out of my control. I, I can't understand why certain things are happening, why things go together. I don't understand. It just kind of feels like I'm done with this year. I cannot wait for January 1st. Maybe that's you. Well, today the text actually addresses this by really pointing our eyes to these two characteristics of Jesus. There's two paragraphs we're going to study in Colossians 1 today. And they point out to us that Jesus is a cosmic king. He's the king over all the universe, but at the same time, he is a very personal king. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 is going to make this case. He's going to say, hey, Jesus, he's this cosmic, incredible king, but because, like because he's a cosmic king, he deserves, he should be, he could be, if you'd let him be, your personal king as well. And we're going to learn a lot of valuable things about Jesus from this text, but we're going to start, it's going to be a little different. We're actually going to start with the second part of the passage and come back to the first part uh, because of the flow of the argument here. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15. If you have your Bible, Colossians 1 verse 15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him. All things hold together. So he points out a few things here about Jesus. He's specifically talking about him, and he kind of gets really big. It's just, it's pretty intense. First, he tells us, hey, he's before all things. Meaning, that Jesus is the one that was there before everything else was created. He was there in the beginning. This is why John would begin his gospel, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was Jesus, right? Jesus was there when everything was created. I had someone come up to me uh, last week after one of the services, and they said, hey, one of the things that's always just, man, caught my attention about Christmas is picturing what it was like for Mary to look at the face of Jesus and in her mind to understand that the very eyes that she's looking at, looking back at her, also witnessed everything be created. He said, it just baffles me. She's looking, and this is what he's saying, he was before all things. He was there in the beginning. When all things were created, Jesus was there. He was a part of the very beginning before everything else. There was Jesus. See, most religions teach, most Eastern religions teach that God comes from the creation, that he is the world, he is the spirit of the earth. But Christianity says, no, no, he's not a part of that. He created it. He's outside of that. He stands apart from all things that were created. He's above it all. He's supreme over all of it. But he doesn't stop there. He says, by him, all things were actually created. So he says, when you, it's not just that he was there before creation. He participated in creating. So everything that you see, everything you've ever been wowed by. You ever, one of the things I love about living here in Indiana is that you have, there's just some of the best sunrises. Like if you get here early, like not you guys, but first service. Uh, <laughs> uh, see? All right. So when they got here, uh, it was, the sun was getting ready to rise. And if you go out in the lobby area toward the front of the building and you look toward Eagle Church, can't miss it. Uh, it's right across the road. Uh, the sun is rising certain mornings, right? It's, it's, un, it's unbelievable. He, he created, he spoke, and things happened. He was the creator of it all. I remember coming out of a breakfast meeting with Ryan King, uh, our student minister, and Jason Lester, who's uh, become one of the elders here at the church now. Um, and we're walking out of this breakfast meeting, and the sun is rising, and we, all three of us just kind of stopped for a moment, and it was just like, wow. And Jason, his, tra- his job, he's a graphic designer. He's an artist, a really good one. And when I looked at it, I said, man, that color is incredible. And his line was, yeah, 
Humans can't make that color. I thought, wow. This is what this text is telling us. Like, man, he, create, he spoke, and all of these things happened. Well, one of the things that you learn is, is one, Christians that aren't scared of science, um, and because it helps us understand science is what God has allowed us to observe about the world, right? So we get to use it as a tool. Well, what you learn is that there's so much intricacy and detail to creation that it leaves people completely baffled. You see, when you study this at a deeper level, that he was before all things and in him all things were created, and, and so now you look at everything that was created and you begin to study it, you begin to be marveled at the fact that there are certain things he placed into creation that kind of blow everybody's mind, whether they're Christians or not. One of the things that blows people's mind is that there's a physical order to the universe. I mean, scientists have been completely blown away by this for ages. There's a physical order to creation. Everything about it. So I was reading about these two famous atheist physicists this past week who said that they're not Christians, they don't believe in God, but they said they can't explain the order in the universe. The orderliness of this universe leaves us dumbfounded. And you've, you, you understand this. The forest fires that are that were raging in, in California, if they're raging at like 200 degrees, I don't know, I'm not the guy that would know this, but if, let's just say 200 degrees, right? And you go there the next day, it's not going to be cold. It's still going to be hot. If, if you take a water bottle and you put it outside on a morning like today, brutal, right? And it freezes at a certain temperature, it's always going to freeze at that temperature. If I grab a rock and I weigh it and it's two pounds today, tomorrow morning I'm not going to wake up and have a rock that's 200 pounds. It's going to weigh the same amount. Like, the orderliness, things that people have come to expect that certain things work a certain way. And this leaves people completely baffled. Like, why is there so much orderliness to this universe? As a matter of fact, one of them said this. He said, there's no way that the orderliness of the universe proves God because he didn't believe in God. But then he followed it up and said this. But I'll tell you this. The orderliness of the universe is so inexplicable that you certainly cannot disprove God. Nobody can be certain there is no God because of the orderliness in the creation. The Apostle Paul were talking to this physicist. He'd say, yeah, but you're not quite getting it. There's more to it than just the orderliness of creation. He says, there's not just physical order. There's actually a moral order. Deep inside of us, we understand this. Paul would write in the passage we just read that Jesus created the visible and the invisible. He said things that you can measure with science and things that you can measure with understanding what you can actually see, but he also created the invisible, things that you can't measure, things that you can't fully wrap your mind around and completely and totally understand. And many people get uncomfortable with this. They say, no, no, there's no invisible, it's all visible, only what you can measure. Well, if that's true, and so bear with me with this very elementary statement I'm about to make, if you remove the invisible, all you have left is the visible. Here's why that would be a problem. Because then things like love and joy would be simply chemical reactions in your brain. That's all it would be. Some would say, yeah, that's all it is. Well, here, here's the problem with that. If love and joy are simply chemical reactions in your brain, then so are hatred, so is racism, so is all these other negative feelings, depression. All the negative comes. And here's the thing. If they're all chemical reactions, we've got no room to complain. Nobody can come and say that one of those feelings is better than the other feeling because they just are. But deep inside of us, the text tells us Jesus created not just the visible but the invisible, and deep inside of you, you know that one of those feelings is far better than the other. See, look around you. This is why we love to do things that bring us joy. This is why we form Christmas traditions. This is why we take pictures and cherish memories. We know 
deep inside of us, that God has created this invisible order to nature as well that creates a morality that is above what we can see and fully understand. There is a physical order to creation, yes, but there is a, there is a moral order to creation as well. And Paul is saying, look, there was darkness and there is light. There are some things that are good and some things that are bad. There are some things that are evil and some things that are good. You cannot reduce it all to everything being on the same level. He created everything. And then Paul bridges it. And one of my favorite verses in Scripture is verse 17, where he says, and this same God, he bridges the gap between this cosmic king. He's saying, you, I mean, look at how big he is. Look at this cosmic ruler, this cosmic king, this creator God. He says, but he's the same God that holds all things together. Now he's bridging this gap between the cosmic king and the very personal king. He's bridging the gap between, hey, God is not just the creator and sustainer of life, he's also the provider. See, my mind hasn't always done this, but when I uh, experience this, my mind goes back to the book of Genesis. And here's what I want to encourage you. This is just, I didn't prepare this, but I want to encourage you this way. The more time you spend in Scripture, the more, more often Scripture will become your default reference. Meaning this, you jump into looking at the physical order of creation, the moral order of creation. You're blown away by how big God is. And instead of just thinking about physical things, you'll come back to understanding Scripture. You'll come back to stories like where my mind now goes. Hasn't always gone, but now when I look at creation, I'm wowed by everything. I go back to stories like the story of Abraham, found in your Old Testament. See, Abraham, God called Abraham and said, I want you to leave everything that you know. And I want to make this promise to you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a great nation. And what he meant by that is, I'm going to make you a dad. Well, Abraham's an old man, and the text actually vividly tells us his wife was completely beyond her childbearing years. So looking at the physical, the visible, you'd say, no, no, that's not possible. But God says there's more to everything that's going on. I'm a cosmic king. I'm in charge here. He looks at him and says, leave everything. I'm going to make you. Well, he knew that, that under, like, believing that was going to be difficult for him. So I love Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, where God instructs Abraham this way. He says, he brought him outside. He said, look, I know this isn't easy for you to understand, but, but just come outside with me. And he says, look up. Look toward heaven. Number the stars. And don't let that be lost in you. He literally told him to start counting. Start counting, if you can. Count the stars. I want you to count what's going on all around you. This is how your offspring are going to be. And it says, and then he believed him. You see, what God was doing in that moment, he was wanting to give Abraham a cosmic context to a personal promise. He said, I want to give you this cosmic context. I want to remind you of how big I am, how powerful I am, how incredible I am. And then from that, draw you closer to this personal promise that I've made to you. I, wanted, I want you to see what I'm capable of, a glimpse of what I'm capable of, because then you'll understand that my promises are always, always true. And so in the same way that Paul says, hey, he holds this cosmic realm together. He holds all of it together. You look at the stars, he's, and, and, and man, you're just reminded, count the stars, how incredible God is. And he holds all of that together. He says in the same way, he can hold the chaos of your personal life together as well. What we look up at and we say, that's just chaos. That's just random. It just, he says, no, 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 it's not random. And he holds it together. You'd look at your life and say, man, this year has just been a wash been a horrible year, a horrible week, a horrible day. I just, I can't get it together. I can't seem to do anything right. And God would say, and I can hold all of that together as well. And so that's expressed in Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. You find in verse 9. So you think, 
that cosmic context, now you get to this personal promise found in verse 9. He says this, And so, from the, from the day that we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to His kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul, for Paul, this prayer wasn't like, I'll pray for you. I like the way that uh, E.D. Martin said it. He said this way, Paul asks, Paul's asking. So throughout all of his writings, when Paul says he's going to pray for somebody, he says it's been regular, intense, focused, and intentional. Such deliberateness stands in sharp contrast to the bland suggestion of prayer that we often offer. I'll be thinking of you. I'll keep you in my prayers. He says, no, for Paul, he had to stop what he was doing, and he labored in prayer for them. Here's why this is important for you to understand. Paul desperately wanted these Christians to experience the fulfillment of the promise that is made by the text. He said, if you will follow this cosmic king, he will make good on his personal promise, and this is what he will do in your life. And so he lays out a few things. Right? The first thing he says is this, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. You'd be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's written in what, a present tense, meaning it's, you continue to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Not a one-time deal. You guys ever heard of the, uh, the, the book, All I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Anybody? No? All right, well, it's a book. Uh, <laughs> you get the concept from the title. And I think there's a lot of Christians that view their faith that way. All I need to know about faith and about God I learned in Sunday school as a little kid. I got all the stories. I grew up in a Christian home. I've got it all figured out. You can't really tell me much. I kind of know everything there is. And Paul's saying, no, no. Like, you have to continually learn and continually grow and not just depend upon your past or what somebody else has said. This has to be personal. A, A personal connection to a cosmic king. That's what he's asking for them. He tells them, like, hey, your, your personal relationship with him, understanding his will, understanding deeply what God has called you to because you spend time in his word, that's your only hope of living a, God, uh, a God-pleasing life. And it's your only guard against false teaching. Because if you're in the practice of even listening to somebody else tell you good teaching and just taking it in, but you're not seeking it out on your own, then you're susceptible to taking in the bad teaching just as well. Number two, he tells him this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Right? This is where it gets a little bit harder, but I, I want to be really honest with you. About four years ago, I got invited to sit in a room with a group of missionaries. I don't know why I got invited. I was like the least worthy person to be in the room, and that's how I felt from the moment it started. All these guys were meeting from all over the world, and, and then they got this dude from Indiana sitting in the room. It's like, these are heroes sacrificing everything to go and, and bring the gospel to these unreached people. And I'm sitting in this room, and the guy gets up, and he, he says two statements that I've been wrestling with for four years, and I, I just can't stop. He made this statement. Jesus does not want to reproduce mediocrity. Right? That's a hard statement. And he says Jesus wants us to go and to make disciples, but he doesn't want to reproduce mediocrity. And then he followed it up with a question that I've been wrestling with for four years. He said, are you a disciple worth reproducing? 
And I thought, man. And, and you come to this text and he says, what God wants to produce in you is a lifestyle that's worthy to be reproduced in others. The key to that is this next thing. Number three, he says, that you would bear fruit in every good work. See, I used this a few years ago. I encourage you, you have to do two things if you want to bear good fruit in your life. You have to stir the things that create affection for you in your life for the Lord. So when my wife is making food in the kitchen, and, and then she has to go solve all of the other problems of our family because I'm inept, uh, she'll say, hey, while I go solve the problem you should be solving, <laughs> would you stir this food? Because if it sits stagnant, uh, it's not going to work. So could you just come and stir it? You've got to stir the ingredients together. So I'll sit there and I'll stir it. I'm like, I don't know why I'm stirring it. It could just sit. And she's like, no, it ruins it if it's not stirred. Well, the same thing is true of your spiritual life. If you're not constantly stirring the things in your life that create affection for Jesus, you'll get stagnant. And then it goes bad. But on the flip side, you have to starve the things out of your life that rob you of your affection for Jesus. So that's hard because the starvation process is not a quick one. It takes a while. So these things that we have to get out of our life, sometimes they're hard and they're painful and it's difficult, but they're taking away your affection that you have for Jesus and you have to get them out of your life so that your life can bear good fruit. Number four, he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. So you're continually learning and growing. But the knowledge of God is not a sit back and take in. It is a sit back and be changed kind of knowledge, meaning it forces you to live out what you're learning. I like the way that Marva J. Dawn said it. She said this, a problem with us when it comes to learning about God in our society is this, that television has habituated its watchers to a low information action ratio. People are accustomed to learning good ideas, even from sermons, and then doing nothing about it. We learn enough to talk about it intelligently, but we never follow through on action. See, this idea Paul pleaded with them. He he ached for them in prayer and said, I want you to see the cosmic king. Realign your life with him so that he begins to transform you and you can learn more and more about him. There's two more quickly. He says this, that you'd be strengthened with all power. And then number six, and you'd constantly be giving thanks to the Father. And so this is Paul's description of a life that's being changed by a proper view of a cosmic king and the fulfillment of a personal promise from a personal king in your life. He begins to change everything about you. And Paul just said, this is what my prayer for you. I plead with God that this is, these things would describe your life. And I think, well, how does that begin to happen? How do we begin to live that out? Because that's a lot easier said than done. Those characteristics are not something that we just wake up one day and we have them. They're developed in us. And the temptation for us is to go out and do. Instead of meditating to become. Instead of getting closer and being wowed by how incredible God is and then allowing him to actually change who you're becoming, we want to go out and do and work and do and work and do and work and get and harder and harder and harder. And so how we do this? Well, two things. One, I want to describe with a little more detail the problem that many of us have with this, like when we, when we try to go out and live this, and then a very quick uh, solution or application I think will help you. So uh, the first is this. Pete Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he identified, I was reading that this past week, he identified 11 traits of a person who just tries to go out and do things for God. But they're missing the cosmic king. They're not seeing him. And so because they're not seeing him, they're just seeing what they need to do, it kind of becomes very internal. Now, these are convicting. A lot of these described my life, things that I need to begin to address in my life. And I think many of them will for you as well. First one is this. These people that think they're just doing it, they do things for God, but it's to satisfy themselves and not Him. 
So I'm going to go do all these things for God so I feel better, not so that I honor him. Number two, they do things in God's name that he never asked them to do. Like you never prayed about it, never thought about it. Just I'm going to go do it because I want to do this. You've seen this, right? I'm doing this. It's for Jesus. But, but like, like I'm doing this thing. It's like, what, did you talk to him about it? So number three, we pray about God doing my will, not about surrendering to his will. So are your prayers have a lot of personal pronouns? Me, me, I, I, me, me. See, this is how that life begins to demonstrate. So number four, they demonstrate Christian behaviors so significant people will think well of me. So I'm going to live this Christian life when I'm around the people that I really want them to see me live in this Christian life. But then when I don't have to, I'm not going to. And so I'll use all the language I want to use whenever I want, but I'll clean it up really good when I'm in church or I'm around church people. I'll be very, very giving when someone's watching and very, very greedy when they're not. You see, what, it, what audience is it that you're living for here? And number five, they focus on certain theological points out of concern for my fears and unresolved emotional issues rather than out of concern for God's truth. So I'm really going to focus on theology and I'm going to wow you with my understanding of theology over, so that I don't have to address anything that's really going on and I don't really want to talk about God's truth. I really just want to talk about uh, my unresolved issues all the time. And so you're constantly talking about yourself and making it all about you, not about God. Number six, they use biblical truth to judge and devalue other people. Unfortunately, that happens a lot. Number seven, they exagger we exaggerate my accomplishments for God to subtly compete with other people. That one stings. I'm going to go do this for the Lord. Oh, you are? Well, guess what I'm going to go do for the Lord? Yeah, you're going on a mission trip over, like, down in Tennessee? I'm going to India. Like, like it's constantly, like, for the Lord. Uh, but we're, I'm competing with you, all right? Like, I'm going to do things for the Lord, but you've got to know that I'm probably going to do them better than you are, all right? It's that feeling. You'd never say it out loud, but that one stings. Number eight. They make pronouncements like, the Lord told me that I should do this, when the truth is I haven't even prayed about it. I haven't spent real time seeking what the Lord would have me to do, but I'll just say this is what the Lord, I, I'm pretty sure this is what God would want me to be doing, but I haven't prayed about it. I find a lot of high school seniors have a really strong conviction of where they should go to college, but haven't even asked the Lord. Number nine, they use scripture to justify the sinful parts of my family relationships my cultural values, my national policies, instead of evaluating them under the lordship of Jesus. And so I'm going to use scripture to do and say what I want it to say, to justify something that I haven't even really evaluated whether or not I'm submitting to. Number 10, they hide behind God talk, deflecting the spotlight from my inner cracks, my inner faults, and then I become defensive about my failures. Don't you tell me where I'm weak. Don't you tell me that I need to work on something. Or we'll misquote scripture. Why don't you get the log out of your eye before you focus on the little speck that's in mine? And we begin very much not wanting to address anything going on in here, right? Because we're living for the Lord. But really, according to Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, he wants us to fully experience this cosmic king and to understand the personal nature of it. The last one, I apply biblical truth selectively to avoid anything that would require me making significant changes in my life. And so I'll apply the Bible until it hurts. And that's hard. See, for Paul, though, 
what might describe some of us is not the desire of the Lord. Paul is saying, hey, come outside with me. Like, if you're struggling with any of this, it's as if there's this invitation that's made to us in Colossians 1. It's an invitation at Christmas time where Paul is saying, hey, come outside with me real quick. We walk outside with all 11 traits describing us. We walk outside broken and in need of some real truth. And he says, hey, do, do me a favor. Look up. Count the stars. Count the stars. Be reminded that he's holding that together. And he can hold you together, too. you got to find your stars. And I don't know what they are for you. And I think some of us might assume what they are for me because of all the whining I do about the cold weather from the stage, right? Do you think it's probably the beach? And for a long time it was, but for me, the thing that, like, when I'm around it, God has my undivided attention, is the mountains. See, I grew up in Florida, and I moved to Indiana. It's like a, there is nothing. <laughs> like the garbage dump's the biggest hill in Florida. Uh, and so I, I remember I, I got to coach the girls' basketball team at Lincoln Christian University. That sounds so cool. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> we would play teams so they could get wins on their record, all right? And so the University of Alaska at Anchorage was one of them. And so they said, hey, we'll pay for your whole team and everybody to come out to Alaska for five days, play us twice. So we, we didn't really play them. We went into the gym. What was fascinating is that like the week before was the Great Alaska Shootout, and I'm a big basketball fan. It's like Mike Krzyzewski was sitting where I got to sit, coaching. So like, this is awesome. But his team did better. We lost by 60 both nights, all right? <laughs> but on that trip, I had one of those moments where God reminded me he's a cosmic king and a very personal, personal king as well. We're out on the freeway, on like a major highway, and all of a sudden traffic stops. And I'm like, all right, why is traffic stopped? And, and so we, we get out of the car because everyone else is out of their vehicles on the highway, standing on the highway in Alaska. And I'm like, I'm going to die. And I'm like, all these people, or all these kids, all these college basketball team, they're all going to die too. Like, what if... So we get out, and we're walking, and I'm literally, it was one of these moments. Why is everybody out? And I just stopped. Because the clouds had parted, and you could see Mount McKinley. And most of the time, it's covered. But in this moment, it was fully visible. And the highway stopped. And people got out of their cars to stop and take pictures and stand and wonder. And I just remember looking at it like, wow. And all I could think was, you created that. You created that. And whatever I was going through in my life at the time, I thought, I mean, you, can, you created that. You can hold this chaos together. I was reminded again a few months ago when Ryan King and his wife Catherine and I got to go to uh, Colorado for a class that we're taking, and we went into the Rocky Mountain National Park, and I was like a little kid. I was all giddy. But there was a moment when we rounded a corner and I saw this mountain range, and I just vividly remember being in Alaska on that highway. Just, whoa, that's incredible. And it brought me back a, a reminder of a cosmic king who created everything and holds it together, but at the same time was my very personal Lord and Savior who had took the chaos of my life, he'd taken the chaos of my life, and he just brought it together, and he reminded me in those moments, I've got this. I've got this. Full circle back to Abraham. I, I've wondered in my life what it would have been like 
for the in-between scenes in Scripture? You know, like we don't get to read about them. Like what would it have been like for, for Abraham and Sarah on the days after he'd counted the stars? When all of their workers had gone to bed, the livestock was all taken care of, and they're just the two of them, and there's no one else. No one else can hear them. There's no one else around, and the two of them are just sitting there, and they're wondering, how in the world is this going to happen? And Sarah might be doubting, like, I don't know. How, how am I supposed to have a child? I'm 100 years old. How in the world is this going to happen? And Abraham says, hey, look, at the clouds parted. Look at the stars. I wonder what it would have been like for him. Really? The night before, he knew he had to go up on that mountain and sacrifice the son, who was the fulfillment of the promise. And questioning, God, this is the son you gave me to fulfill the promise. Now you want me to sacrifice him. I don't understand. And then the clouds parted. Maybe he saw the stars and counted them, and he remembered. Like, you're, you're a cosmic king. You're holding all of that together. I, I think you got this. My wife and I are reading this Advent book with our kids. Um, it's called Unwrapping the Greatest Gift by Ann Voskamp. It's phenomenal. She talks about Abraham and the stars in here. And I want to read it to you. God took Abraham out to the darkest, blackest night and asked him to look up and believe. See the stars, God asked. Abraham looked up and he saw that there's always light in the dark. The stars danced. Can you count all of those stars, Abraham? Abraham stared into that velveted night sky and a million, billion, trillion diamond shimmering stars danced around him. And then Abraham tried to count all the ways, the thousands and millions and billions of ways that God loved him and it made him dance in awe with the stars. See, God asked, I'll bless you. I'm not going to burden you down. I'm going to break you up. I will not break you up. I will bless you. Because I'm the God of unconditional, unbeatable, unfailing, unending, unwrappable love. I will bless you. I will give you the greatest gift of love. Abraham followed God to that land that he showed him. He believed that God would bless, bless him, believing that one day God would bless all families, your family, through a child who would be born under one enormous, blazing, brilliant star. The greatest gift God gives you is himself. His very own presence. This, too, can, if you'll let it, help you dance. See, this is Christmas. It was never about the stars with Abraham. It was about who the stars pointed to. The one who holds it all together. We see a manger, and we sing songs, and we have traditions. But it's not about the manger and the songs and the traditions about who it all points to. It's the cosmic king who made a very personal promise to you. It's the cosmic king who never breaks his word. It's the cosmic king who looks at the chaos of your entire life and screams to you during this time of the year, I've got it. I can hold all of this together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That when it does feel like, and it often does in this world, just feels like our world is out of control, that peace is a word we don't understand. You remind us through the beauty of your creation that you are a cosmic king. You are big and incredible and powerful. That you have created all things. That you were before all things. And in you, 
all things, even the chaos of our life, the difficulty that we walk through, you hold it all together. Father, this next week as we begin to try to live this out, we find our stars, we find those things that captivate us, the things that give you our undivided attention and affection. Father, would you provide a few moments this next week for us to just sit or stand in awe of all that you've done in creation and all that you've done in our personal lives. Thank you for being the God that always keeps his word. We offer you this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare for communion, I want to read you the text again in the order that Paul wrote it. And I want you to understand this is the prayer we should have for one another and then the reason why we should have it. And so from the day that we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, Jesus. He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things, all things, all things hold together. Let's pray.